Hi, everyone. Today, me and Ren are going to be talking about how Tolkien influenced their graphic novel, The House on Capel Hill. So our first question for this session is, will your graphic novel, The House on Capel Hill, have a lot of world building, even though it is a more character driven work? What role will world building play in The House on Capel Hill? Hi, Fortunus Games. It's great to be back. Um, as far as world building in The House on Cable Hill, it is, um, it's really going to play a huge role in this work because it is, although it is a character driven work, it takes place over a number of parallel universes and parallel timelines. So I really have to take a look at each one and determine, um, you know, what place in history does this kind of fit in and if events in the real world went a little differently than they did what would that you know what uh, echoes or waves could we expect back from those um mm -hmm. those pebbles being dropped in the pool as it were right that's actually a very common theme we see in a lot of sci-fi especially stuff with you know time loops and alternative realities Absolutely. I think it's a very common um, trope, if you will, in science fiction and fantasy that deals with um, any kind of um, parallel universes that there are points in history that diverge where um, if another outcome had uh, been the conclusion of an event, then history could have been very different. And uh, exploring those themes is what makes up a lot of the bulk of those works. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So I think as we talked about on the Instagram live, there is one story in particular in the house in Capel Hill that is the most obviously influenced by Tolkien because it takes place in a medieval setting. I suppose you could say that. I hadn't really thought of it that way initially, but the more I think about the way uh, Tolkien has influenced me as a writer and the more I think about um, Rowan's story in particular, the more I see that it, it could be very Tolkien-esque. Um, it's uh, it's it's the story of a um, of a fae who goes out in search of a way to find um, he he goes out to search for a way to to, uh, to save his people to save the fae that are left in the world as humanity is becoming more quote unquote intellectual or you know knows better than than to believe in things like fairies or magic or that sort of thing. But it's also a, a very interesting time that it'll take place in where it is pretty medieval. We're, we're gonna be looking at um, like the, the um, about the 14th to the 16th centuries uh, when men of magic and men of science were almost synonymous, but there was still a huge fear of things like witchcraft or things like, mm -hmm. um, you know, people were very much afraid of fae and brownies and that kind of thing. Um, but there was also, there were also huge waves of, it, it almost seemed like even in the wake of um, these tremendous wars, like the hundred years war, when people were looking for meaning and people were looking for something to believe in, there came almost another war, a cultural war of, um, you might almost call it religion versus spirituality, where you had uh, an edifice like the church, the Christian church, um, at odds against um, any spiritualism that was in opposition of it, or even just was different from it. Mm -hmm. That's very um, true. Because yes. there was only, this was before the Protestant Reformation. So it was, you know, the time of the Holy Roman Church. Exactly. It was the time of, the, of events like, uh, the Moors being driven from Spain. It was a time for things like 
um, uh, the, the, um, why am I losing my words today? The Crusades. Um, it was a time when there was still so much about the world that people under didn't understand. And um, in searching for ways to explain those things, you either veered towards you know, a tradition that seemed to be growing in encompassing the world, or you stayed to belief systems and spirituality that was more centered towards what was local to you, the local deities that your, your people had believed in before and that kind of thing. And, and almost like a, a mirror, a, a, um, of the Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Empire sought to conquer the world with a cross. And, mm -hmm. you know, as as noble as they would, you know, try to justify their intentions as having been, what it amounted to was the destruction of other cultures. Absolutely. And what culture is Rowan from? I know he is a Fae, so does it mean he is from the British Isles? He is um, a number of, I think almost all of my characters really are from the British Isles and we'll see their connections to um, Germanic lore and we'll see their connections to Egyptian lore in other episodes. Um, more specifically, like, I, you know, I knew I needed to wait to tie in Egyptian mythology into this work because I was using their system of, of um, their look at the soul, the nine pieces. Mm -hmm. Um, and there is a legend that uh, the peoples of Ireland, and more specifically Scotland, I believe, are descended from Egyptian royalty who traveled north. So I wanted to take a look at that also and, you know, and see like, oh, well, if the if the Egyptians made it that far north and things had gone a little differently, would we see a much more Egyptian looking culture in Britain and that kind of thing? But in Rowan's case in particular, um yes he is from the british isles mm -hmm. uh i didn't specify a, a country that he's that he's supposed to be from he's just the spirit of a uh a mountain spring you know he's somewhere tucked away and he's been sort of separated from the rest of the world for a very long time um until it's it starts in a very almost uh last unicorn way it starts becoming very noticeable that the other spirits he knew and the other um the other deities that have been there for so long start disappearing and so he has to venture away from that isolation and seek a different path and um kind of the hinge of this story is that his name is not actually rowan it's another name that's only seen written in Ogham script which is uh, an ancient celtic script mm -hmm. um so there's definitely um, a theme of balancing your true identity with the one that keeps you safe. There is a um, there are definitely themes of uh, putting yourself in a in a place of vulnerability, um, not for your own sake, but for the sake of others. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm really excited to be working on his uh, his part of the story. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And Rowan's journey also mirrors what happens at the end of the house on Capel Hill, correct? Because I remember that Josephine's own true name is also an Ogham script. It's the same one because Rowan is her Ren. Mm -hmm. He is her name. Right. He's just a personification of her true name. Um, 
So there, there is a bit of that. And the, and it, it, part of the, the, um, I don't know, I guess the resolution of the story is that, you know, after these hundreds of years traveling the world and um, making safe havens for other Fae, uh, along his travels, he kind of starts to have that um, fraud disorder where, where, you know, people kind of start to question, like, is this really who I am? Was I ever really a Fae? You know, was, was any of that real? Uh, but it takes an um, intervention from Josephine to remind him who he really is and the power of his real name. And that's kind of what gives us the resolution of the story Absolutely. for him. So Rowan's story is at the end of the series, correct? Because as I remember from our previous podcast about the different parts of the soul, I think the one about Ren is closer to the end. It is closer to the end, yes. I think it's going to be in the final three. I think there's going to, I think um, I'm going to try and break it into a triplicate of triplicates and have, you know, the first three kind of being uh, the closest things for us as uh, people in a Western society to understand things like the body and uh, the life spark and kind of moving on as we go through the series into the more, um, for lack of a better word, foreign concepts, abstract concepts of what makes up a person. Uh, and the final three will include the the Ren and um, the Sahu, which is the, the heart of a personality, what you are when you boil away everything else. So yes, mm -hmm. uh, that's, I think that's part of building up that, um, building up that tension so that the resolution is that much more satisfying is having the most uh, elusive and mysterious pieces of the soul being towards the end. Mm -hmm. I, I agree. That's a good structure. So number two, which culture, i.e. Elvish or Dwarven, in Tolkien's work was the most inspirational for you? Um, I think, you know, that's, that's a really difficult question because I feel like there are two that definitely influence me as an author and as um, a storyteller and builder of worlds. And those would be the Elvish culture and the Hobbit culture, which are really the opposite because the elves are the most ancient. Some of them like Elrond and Galadriel remember the days of, you know, the days when Sauron was a full power. They, they remember things that men have forgotten, that dwarves have for already forgotten. Um, so there's this sense of an unknowable ancientness that they just encapsulate. Um, and I think Tolkien really, uh, he really nailed that when he decided to base their language off of Welsh, which is the oldest surviving Celtic language. And you can hear it when you hear Elvish and you can hear it when you, you know, when you hear the comparison of Elvish and Welsh, you can absolutely hear the, the similarities and the grammatical structure and such. Um, whereas on the, on the complete flip side of that coin is the Hobbit culture, which I was recently telling a friend seems the most incongruous in the world of Middle Earth because they're so modern. Mm -hmm. They're just about Regency, you know, they have waistcoats and things. They, they have such a modern, such an idyllic and um, privileged life. And they are so completely unaware and oblivious 
of all these things that happened so many thousands of years before they were ever even born. Uh, but I think that also gives the hobbits a really beautiful approach and perspective to the rest of their world that they have a sense of childlike wonder that comes with the youth of a culture. That's a good point. So they're pretty much polar opposites in many ways. Exactly. Exactly. Is Rowan as a fae more influenced by Elvish culture, I think, because he's more ancient? Yes, he definitely is. Um, he is, and, and part of the core of him as a character is, um, is this balladeer, a storyteller in and of himself who keeps these oral traditions and histories of other cultures and other peoples alive, that he's going out on this journey, not only to, um, to save the Fae that are still there, but to preserve their memory. And that's a huge part of his story. Uh, so I would say that he's definitely more influenced by Elvish, uh, by the Elvish culture in the sense that um, he taps into those deep rememberings and he does it out of a sense of respect and preservation, not out of a sense of, um, never out of, a, you know, th this very colonialist sense of, well, I'm better than this culture anyway, but out of mercy, I'll keep it alive. It's, it's never that. It's always a point of, uh, well, you know, this culture has its own life and it deserves its own dignity and respect um, just as much as any other does. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And would you say that Josephine and because of the whole Regency influence is a little bit like the Hobbits because before she sets out on her journey, she's also kind of privileged and a little bit self encapsulated in her own society? I'd say that is a very apt um encapsulation of that thought Josephine comes from a time and it's interesting because there are many points in history when humanity has felt like ah oh, we have reached our peak and um I think the Victorians were one of those <laughs> <laughs> they definitely thought they they had reached their peak let's close the patent offices you know what else is there to there's nothing more to improve um but Josephine always comes from a place of questioning that. And I think that's a, a perspective that I hope to bring out in her throughout the series is that she approaches, you know, as she stumbles into these worlds, she's filled with wonder. It's not, it doesn't have to be dread. It's not always dread. There's, um, there's curiosity, there's, um, there's being swallowed up in something more beautiful than you could have imagined from the time and the culture that you come from and the joy of exploring those cultures and those ideologies. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Finally, another main question we have, and after that we can ask smaller questions if needed. <laughs> Did Tolkien's writing style have an impact on how you'll be writing your graphic novel? How about the framing of events and pacing? Um, that is such an interesting question because I feel like Tolkien's writing style can almost be different from book to book. Um, as we talked about with Hellevorn, like the difference between the tone of and the pacing of The Hobbit versus the pacing and tone of Lord of the Rings or of Silmarillion, like they have very different moods. 
Um, and one thing that definitely influenced me about his style was that he was eloquent, but still, he could still sound friendly, particularly in books like The Hobbit or Roverandum. He could, you could, you could still um, imagine knowing the narrator of these stories. And that was something that I always craved as an author was to have that casual familiarity with my audience. Um, that definitely impacted me. And again, the, 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 the Hobbit's sense of wonder that that comes with exploring and discovering something that's been, you know, it's existed and it's been, it's been around so long that it's already been buried and has to be unearthed again. The wonder that comes out of um, unearthing something that ancient is definitely an influence that came to me from Tolkien. Mm-hmm. So will your graphic novel be in first person perspective or third person perspective? Ah, um, that's a little, that's a little funny. That's a little difficult because comics can kind of switch between in pretty smooth ways. If you look at works like, you know, Sandman or something, it goes from between a third person narrator narrating the events of, um, the Sandman's adventures to, um, to it being, you know, one of any one of the characters themselves. And that's part of the idea that I'm going for that there is an overarching third person narrative, but within each one of the nine books, um, that perspective can vary. Some of them will be from the first person. Some of them will be from the, from the third. Some of them will be a mixture. There's, there's gonna be a little bit of everything just depending on what that character has to communicate. Um, and how I want the audience to experience that. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Given that there are so many different characters and aspects to be explored, that there would be, you know, a corresponding difference in narration style and perspective. Yeah, I think so. And I never wanted this work to come across to other people in the way that some series do where it's it's just kind of like oh I see we're going back to the same character and we're just starting over and um that can be very wearing to me as a reader as well as a storyteller mm -hmm. um to you know and I I understand the sense of grounding your audience with something familiar however I think that playing with how and when you ground them is pivotal to how the story lands um because you might you know we're going to go through josephine's story in the first book all of it her whole life leading up to when she is um first thrown into the crossroads and um you know as we see her enter and exit the other characters lives she is a grounding force yes because she is the most familiar she's the most familiar in the sense that she's the character we've spent the most time with and she's also the most familiar in the sense that we all know what a body is we know we all know how a body feels um but we get to see her in relation to others in a different way and you know when we decide to plop her if you will into the story and make the changes we need to make we do see from her perspective that these are kind of leaps and bounds but from the third party 
overarching perspective, we do also see the context of each of these characters' lives, not just Josephine's when she drops into their life, you know? Mm-hmm. Right, exactly. That makes a lot of sense. Were there any other influences by Tolkien that influenced, um, you know, your ideas for the house in Capel Hill? Um, I mean, certainly the, uh, I mean, Tolkien, I think Tolkien as an author almost influenced me more than any one of his works did in the sense that he's just, he's this very intellectual, very um, scholastic sort of author that he approaches each of his works, even if they do come out to be a little more casual, he approaches each of them with a very um, personal connection. He enters it with uh, the knowledge of the cultures that he's kind of warped to make his own world. But he, it's, it's, it's very obvious that he's deeply rooted in these worlds himself that he knows their mythology, he knows their histories, he knows, you know, there's just, there's so much going into that that we might not even touch on as a reader, but it carries across that it's still there. Mm -hmm. And you aim to have that same kind of depth in your work, correct? I absolutely do, yes. And it is a monumental task. (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) (laughs) There's so much research that goes into that, into so many different cultures and so many different histories and they almost start to feel like parallels of themselves you know like um I I listen to uh histories of of Britain and and Wales in particular and uh you know you'll start with what archaeology can tell us about prehistory and then you move on to sort of the great empires of antiquity and how those stretched and squashed and spread across the globe and you start to wonder to yourself as you as you go through these histories well what would have what would it have been like if the tables were turned or if the empire quote-unquote had been a whole different culture um even going down as far as uh one you might call it an easter egg i guess uh, one of the little details that I plan on having in my book is that when we when we touch on what in our world would be the Roman Empire, it's going to be called the Reman Empire because it was named after Remus instead of Romulus. Oh. Like even that small of a change in history and mythology, how how substantially do those snowball? Mm-hmm. How substantially do those exponentially develop over the course of a culture? Absolutely. That makes a lot of sense. Right. So is there anything else you want to mention in this podcast about Tolkien's influence? Or do you think we can talk about that in another podcast? Um, that's a really tough question because then I scour my brain and I say, what else did Tolkien teach me? <laughs> <laughs> I think, um, I think, uh, we could probably save some of that for the next time Hellevorn joins us both and we can kind of compare notes and, and see what thoughts she might have. I, I had just such immense fun talking with the three of you, and this has been such a wonderful experience coming on and, and, uh, getting able, being, being able to, um, expand this discussion to, to the place it's gone is, is very gratifying. 
Mm-hmm. We can also talk about individual stories because I think Halliburton said she was considering reviewing, you know, separate stories by Tolkien and how they influenced her. Absolutely. I actually recently purchased the Silverillion for my Kindle so that I could get started on that because um, I, I feel like it's kind of been left out of my experience of Tolkien. Like I understand what it is and um, how it fits into the mythos of Middle Earth, but I've always wanted to read it because, and I, it's interesting because I also have this complaint with Game of Thrones, <laughs> that I'm almost more interested in the culture and the mythology of that world than I am in the story that's being told. <laughs> like, yeah, tell me about the seven gods and their seven heavens and hells. That sounds interesting more than Jon Snow or Daenerys, you know, like that's, <laughs> that's just where I come. And I think that that might be partially that academic approach to fiction that rubbed mm-hmm. off on me. Oh, I have an idea. Next time we have a three-way with Halliburton, we could talk about how to do academic research. I think that would be a very interesting podcast. I know Tete would really like it because, you know, she's also doing a lot of research for her story about Cossacks, you know, Andre in the 20th century. So we can, especially since Halliburton has experience as a PhD in medieval history, she can really talk about how to do research, how to save time and energy, because it is a very arduous task. So I think she, and also myself, because I have taken a history major, even though I haven't gone on to do a master's or PhD in history, I can also share my experience in university about how to do research in a way that really minimizes energy. And it doesn't feel as much of an arduous task if you follow (laughs) these steps. Just a little less Sisyphusy. And I would absolutely love that. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I did definitely learn some methods of academic research when I was in school, but to, to hear it from the perspectives of not only people who uh, have the degrees, which is a lot more than I have, but also who have the experience Mm -hmm. doing the research and trying to figure out, well, what shortcuts can I take? Um, How do I streamline this, uh, this effort? I would absolutely love to, to hear that from, from y'all. Right, exactly. Because I've been sharing a little bit with Tete recently, and we've been talking about how to use stuff like JSTOR and, you know, how to use secondary versus primary sources to start out and which sources are more reliable versus not. So those are some starting points we could talk about, you know, with Halliburton, I think. Yeah. Oh, although now that the thought finally crossed my mind, I think one other thing I wanted to blurb about um, Tolkien was the... uh, the Mabernogion, which is a Welsh compendium of mythology um, from their culture in Britain. And that has been the basis for most of, I would say basically all of what we call Western, you know, high fantasy literature and our concept of, you know, knights on horses and dragons. And I believe Arthur also fits into there somewhere, but that kind of mythos all came from the Mabernogion, which Tolkien was very much a fan of, and mm-hmm. um, which I plan on reading a little more in depth as as things go on. Right. Halliburton is actually in Cambridge right now. So, you know, she did do an Instagram live a few hours ago. So I hope she can share more things. And maybe that could also be of inspiration to all of us. Oh, that would be lovely. Yeah. I wonder if, she, no, I, I don't think she would come across anything Welsh because that's in a different place in the UK, right? In Cambridge, they probably would actually because Welsh mythology, including things like Robin Hood and Arthur, have become so ingrained in the British, um, 
how how would you even call it the British identity mm-hmm. uh, a lot of it surprisingly um even in in what is strictly uh the English culture a lot of it does actually spring from Welsh and um it's it's honestly quite surprising because you go through those those kinds of stories and you you know we have the exposure to it and we don't even question where it comes from for so That's long mm-hmm. we don't even question where legends like robin hood or, Ar- or king arthur came from but um there is a source sort of it's a little complicated with with welsh <laughs> but mm-hmm. um i'll have to we'll have to ask Heliborn if she comes across yes, the Mabernogion in, in her studies yeah we can do it today in the instagram chat because uh, I think she's, no, she's not falling asleep yet. So we can still message oh, her right good. now because <laughs> she's still in Cambridge. So we, she has time to research about how she can find something like that. Poor thing. Well, we'll have to message her and um, yes. we'll find out what she has to say about those things. I'm so excited to find out. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. This was very amazing. And I cannot wait for our future three ways with Hellaborn about research. Cause I think that's going to be a very incredibly great resource for so many of our listeners. Oh, absolutely. I I can agree with you more. Right. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.